in verse 7 of chapter 4. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now, if you read on in that psalm, you see that David said, When I covered my sin, my bones wasted away, and God's hand was heavy on me all day long. But I said to myself, I will repent of my sin. I will, I will confess my sin to the Lord, and you forgave. Just like that. Just in the Old Testament, if a believer confessed, immediately they were forgiven. There's something even better than that in the New Testament. First uh, John 1 John 1.9 says, We keep on confessing our sins. He is faithful and righteous that he may forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We keep on confessing, but the forgiveness and cleansing that John talks about, he uses a tense in the Greek verb that means it happened back at the cross. In other words, we confess not to get forgiven, but we confess because we are forgiven. And that is a tremendous, tremendous promise that we have from God. We confess because of what Jesus did on the cross. What he did on the cross forgave us. Clear back there. And we confess because we're forgiven. And that's an awesome promise. Uh, Even if we commit sin and don't repent, the work of Jesus has forgiven us. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, We ask you to be our guide and our teacher. And we pray, Father, that you will penetrate our hearts with the word. And that it will be a blessing to us. And that we'll be faithful to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So talking about Abraham and David, here are two guys that broke the law. Uh, Abraham sinned and was justified before there was a law. Genesis 15.6 is the basis of the book of Romans and Galatians, where it says, Abraham believed God and God counted him righteous. He credited that as righteousness. So he accepts faith in place of righteousness, which is good for us because we don't have righteousness. The only righteousness we have is is derived from Jesus. Uh, But God says, my holiness I will give to no other. You know, there's no one who has God's holiness. But without holiness, we will not see God. Therefore, we must depend on Jesus' holiness. For us to become holy. One of my favorite passages of scripture is over in Hebrews chapter 10, where the writer, I don't know who it was, uh, some people think it was Paul, but I, I don't. The Greek is way different from Paul. I think it could be somebody like Barnabas, or maybe um, Silas, but I'm not sure. I mean, we just don't know who the author is. But the author in that book talks about God has accepted as perfect all those who are becoming holy. That's an amazing statement. That's Hebrews 10:14. God, by one sacrifice, has made perfect forever all those who are becoming holy. In other words, if you're better now than you were two years ago or five years ago, if you're overcoming sin more today than you were years ago, then that's proof that God has already accepted you as perfect through the sacrifice of Jesus. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever all those who are becoming holy. That's an amazing, amazing statement. So you can tell. Nobody else can tell, but you can tell by looking at your life if you are overcoming sin. The real message of the New Testament, besides the fact that everyone is forgiven, which we talked about before, 
not just the church, but Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. So everybody's forgiven. But the, the promise that we are made perfect by his sacrifice, if we are becoming holy, means we can look at our lives and see whether or not we are perfected by God if we are overcoming sin. This doesn't mean we don't sometimes occasionally sin. But it does mean that we're not continually sinning. We don't live in sin. Okay? So by the time we get to the fifth chapter, Paul has given us two illustrations. One guy who uh, sinned before law was made justified, and that was Abraham, justified by faith. And then David, who sinned under the law, a couple of biggies, murder and adultery. Besides that, there was deceit and pride and several other things involved there. But because of his faith in God, he repented, and God accepted him as righteous, even under law, which he broke. And as James says, you break any of the one, one law out of those 611, and you're guilty of all 611. So we're in a pretty hopeless condition if it wasn't for something God did. So look at chapter 5. This is some of the greatest scripture. I discovered this passage. I mean, I'd read it probably a hundred times, but when my dad was dying of cancer, I discovered this passage. The meaning came out to me. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces endurance, perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Now that's a mouthful. Just those five verses is a tremendous amount of information. Look at the first line. Therefore, he's, you know, Ken Eidelman used to say, whenever you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. Um, it's there because he's been talking about justification by faith with two illustrations, Abraham and David, and now he says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Justified is a forensic term a court term in the first century. It means the judge declares you not guilty. Now, of course, this doesn't mean you're not guilty. It simply means that you have been declared not guilty. It's like getting a pardon for something you're guilty for. Now, God has declared us not guilty. Justification simply means that by our faith, God has accepted us as righteous people and counted us innocent. If you go to the book of Revelation, you'll see that uh, John says, uh, well, Jesus is actually writing this, uh, the seven letters to the churches. He says, I will give him a white stone that has uh, a name written on it known only to him and to God. I'll give him a white stone. When the ancient church in the ancient culture when a judge passed a guilty or non-guilty verdict, the judge, the judge and the jury had black and white stones. And if you give him a white stone, that means you're accepted as innocent. And these are people who keep their faith in Jesus. The whole message of the scripture is keep your faith and stop sinning. That's it. It's so simple. But it's also very difficult. Uh, my wife and I read a two- or three-page letter this morning from back in the 90s written to her dad from a lady who was dealing with doubts and struggling. All the way through the letter, you could see her struggling with her faith. But she believed. And I've watched this happen in so many people. You know, you see people suffering and struggling uh, 
struggling against sin, you know, one of the authors, uh, uh, John Wesley's journal, he says, if you're not struggling against sin, you're probably not a Christian. You know, the struggle is there. It'll always be there. As long as we're in the flesh, the flesh can't, can't please God. Paul makes that very clear. In the flesh, it's impossible to please God, he says. But the Holy Spirit in us, helping us to believe we can please God through our faith. And so what he says here is, you are justified that is counted not guilty by your faith. Then he says, since this is so, we have peace with God. I love that word. Everybody knows uh, Paul was a Hebrew mind. And Paul thought in Hebrew terms. And when he wrote the Greek word, Irene, Irene, he was thinking of the word shalom. And that word, original meaning, was all your debts are paid. Wouldn't that be incredible? All your debts are paid. You don't owe God anything. Because Jesus paid it all. There's a song about that. We, we have peace with God. That is, we don't owe Him anymore. Of course, we owe Him everything. Because it's all from Him. But He says we have peace with God and we uh, have gained access to the grace, uh, by faith, to the grace in which we now stand. So many people in the church think the only way I can get grace is by getting better. I, I have to do something to get grace. It's not so. He says, if you have peace with God, you stand in grace. If you have been justified, you, you stand in grace. Standing in grace means you don't have to do something to get it. It's yours already. I love this. I think this is just incredible stuff. Yeah. Justified is just as if I'd never sinned. Yeah. Good point. He goes on and says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? He says we rejoice in this passage three times. From here down to through verse 11. What does it mean to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? <clears throat> We're going to share that with him. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is up on the mountain with his three disciples and Moses and Elijah show up? Luke says they came and showed up. They were there in glory as Jesus was in glory. What that means is for us that we also have the hope of the glory of God, that we can be like God in glory. Jesus calls us in John chapter 10, God's small g. He said, I said you are God's and the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, there's something special about us, that we are glorious divine beings. If we could see ourselves, C.S. Lewis, my, one of my favorite authors, probably my favorite outside the Bible, C.S. Lewis says, if you could see yourself as you really are, you would want to fall down and worship yourself. Or run away in horror. See, something incredible has happened to us on the inside. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says, Moses, you remember, out of Exodus 34, came down the mountain with his face glowing like lightning, and the people fled from him, and he called the elders to him, and he told them what God had said, and then he put a veil over his face. And you read Exodus 34, and it sounds like he put the veil over his face so the people wouldn't be afraid of him. 
But Paul says he put the veil over his face to cover up the fact that his glory on his face was fading away. He says that means the Old Testament fades away. But we, with ever-increasing glory, are being transformed to be like Jesus. And one day we'll look in the mirror and see that reflection. See, if we could see ourselves as we are inside, I know you're looking at the outside just like I have to. You don't have any choice. I know it's embarrassing, but you have to look at the outside. When Samuel went to appoint a king, he took a horn of oil with him and he was going to anoint a king and all the handsome brothers came up before him and He's in Bethlehem looking at these brothers, and he says, Surely this is the one. This guy is so handsome and broad-shouldered. And God speaks to him and says, Stop looking on the outside. Yahweh looks on the inside. And after he'd look at all the brothers, he said, Not one of these. Do you have another one? They said, Well, this young one, he's out watching the sheep. said, Go get him. And when David appeared, the Spirit said, He's the one. Get up and anoint him. See, God could see something in David that others couldn't see. And God can see how glorious we are on the inside. And we await a Savior from heaven, Paul says, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. I love this. I think this is incredible. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We will be like God, transformed. Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, the mortal will put on immortality, and the corruptible, the rotting, will put on incorruption, and death will be swallowed up in victory. That's the hope of the Christian, that we're going to be like God. 1 John 3, I quoted the other day, says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called sons of God. And that is what we are. It does not yet appear what we will be, but when He appears, can you say the rest of it? We will be like Him. And anyone who has this hope in Jesus is purifying himself, even as He is pure. In other words, if you hope to be like Jesus, start becoming like Him. Purify yourself. The hope of the glory of God. Isn't that an awesome thing? That's why the church is filled with rejoicing. Read Philippians sometimes and underline all the times he says joy and rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. I mean, he he just goes on and on with it. Rejoice in service. What are the good works we're rewarded for? Helping people. 1 John chapter 2 gives us a definition of love, agape. And that is simply helping people. If you see your brother in need, you help fulfill that need. And that could be a lot of different things. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice, what does it say? In our what? In our sufferings. Rejoice in suffering. Do you know what John and Peter and Paul mean when they talk about suffering? They're talking about our own death on the cross. They're talking about putting to to death the deeds of our flesh. Stop letting the flesh be in charge. Let the Spirit rule over the flesh. This is part of the reason for fasting in the Bible. To teach for the Spirit to teach the flesh who's boss. I read about, you know, it's not going to kill you if you're over 30 to, to fast. I read about a guy that fasted 186 days. That's a little too long. He died. Not a good idea. 
Not a good idea. But I doubt if Jesus was overweight and yet he fasted 40 days. I read a book entitled God's Chosen Fast by uh, Arthur Wallace. And he kept a record of a 21-day fast trying to match what Daniel did in Daniel 10. Hey, you want to read about spiritual warfare? Read Daniel 10. He prays asking God to send the angel that was with him in chapter 9. In chapter 9, he prayed three and a half minutes and the angel showed up. In chapter 10, he prayed and prayed and prayed and fasted for 21 days. He said, I didn't wash. I didn't eat. I lay on my face before God and I prayed. And in 21 days, the angel shows up, and he comes swiftly, and he glows like he's just come out of a furnace. And he says to Daniel, I have just come from war. The archangel Michael came and freed me from the prince of Persia, some other great principality or power in the heavenly realms, And I've been freed, and now I've come to you, but when I leave you, I must go fight with Michael against the prince of Persia and his minions. And then he answers Daniel's question, and then he takes off. Now, if that isn't spirit warfare, I don't know what it is. If Daniel had quit praying after 21 days and given up, or after 20 days, he'd never known the answer. But he, he fasted for 30 days. No, 21 days to get the answer. And so this Arthur Wallace writes a book entitled God's Chosen Fast, a little paperback about yay thick, and keeps a a diary of a 21-day fast that he set up ahead of time with God. He prayed about it. He planned it. And then he did it. And on the seventh day, He fixed breakfast for his family, biscuits and gravy and bacon and eggs and all those wonderful smelling things. And he said he wasn't even hungry. Because after four or five days, the hunger goes away. And your body goes into starvation mode. And he said, you have to be careful to wash because you'll begin to stink because all the toxins that are in your body will start coming out through your pores. He said, I learned that from my wife. She told me, you need to take a shower. (laughs) And so it's a good idea. And all he did was drink water for 21 days. And he keeps a record of every day how he felt. Some days he felt weak, some days strong, but he did no physical labor. And I'm sure when Jesus was in the desert 40 days, Moses up on the mountain 40 days, Elijah out in the desert 40 days without food, I'm sure they weren't doing any heavy work. Elijah was walking, but Moses was with God, and Jesus was tempted by the devil. What an amazing Amazing thing. The human body can take a lot of fasting. If we fasted in this country, even occasionally, we'd be so much better off. It gives your body a chance to get rid of toxins. It gives your intestines a chance to rest. It's a hard thing, and it's not popular in America. I asked uh, one of our students from India who had paid his way through school by working and by praying and people supported him. And he said, in America, they use Madison Avenue techniques. They go out and try to raise money for different businesses and things. He said, I've never done that. I've always prayed and worked, and God's always provided. And I said, what do you see wrong in the American church? He said, Americans don't believe in prayer. And Americans don't believe in fasting. And that's a tragedy. If you're over 30 and you don't have growth hormone coursing through your body anymore, you can fast. It's not going to hurt you. And if you go four or five days, you will no longer be hungry. And what I do is I fast, and on the second day I start thinking about cheeseburgers. Well, then you're not fasting, you're starving. 
And what I do is let those appetites lead me to depend on God instead and think about God and focus on Jesus. And I promise you, if you do that, it will be a great joy to you. Look what he says. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We can overcome. And he says, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I first read that. It just kind of took me back. Rejoice in our suffering. you got to remember, for Peter and Paul and John, suffering almost always means putting to death sin in our flesh. Just like Jesus suffered on the cross, his flesh being put to death... The trouble with with, uh, crucifixion is it's not something that happens like that. It's a long, slow, extremely painful process. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. In other words, we've got to put our flesh up on there. Paul says in Galatians 6, Anyone who depends on Christ has crucified the flesh with its desires. We need to put to death the flesh and make alive the spirit. God will strengthen the spirit if we put to death the flesh. And one of the ways to do that is through prayer and fasting. What happens if we suffer? What happens if we begin overcoming sin? Look what it says. Suffering produces perseverance or endurance. You know, you can bear up under almost anything when you're suffering. I remember a kid was told, you'll be hanged by the neck at sunrise. He was in prison. He was in a movie. And I remember he sat there against the wall with his friends around him, and they were very quiet. And finally he said, you know, ever since I found out I'm dying at sunrise, I haven't had a sexual thought. And I thought... That's suffering. Suffering stops that. Anytime you put to death the deeds of the flesh, it stops that kind of thinking. This is why Paul's going to tell us later in chapter 12 to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How do you renew your mind? Well, one way is right here. And another couple of ways is prayer and fasting. Suffering produces perseverance or endurance. Endurance produces, there's a word that the NIV left out here that should be translated proven character. This word character that he uses, proven character means that this is a person who is like ore that's been brought in from a mine and has been run through a fire to get rid of all the dross and to get the gold out. This is what faith is. Peter says our faith is fine gold. The book of Revelation says, Jesus speaking to the church, come to me without cost and without money and buy gold. In other words, Keep your faith in me. That's the gold that Christ has to offer. Faith. Proven character means character that's been run through the furnace and purified. But folks, the furnace hurts. And if you want your faith to be purified into fine gold... You must suffer. And by suffering, you put to death the deeds of your body. You stop letting your flesh tell you what to do. You know, if a dog wants sex, it has sex. If a dog wants to eat, it eats. People shouldn't be like that. People should be like Jesus. Perseverance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. I wrote... Back many, many years ago, 45, six years ago, I wrote a master's thesis on the little word hope. I had no idea what I was getting into. There are 17 different words and phrases in the Bible translated hope. Ten in the Hebrew Old Testament and seven different words in the New Testament. It means everything from 
you just can't wait. You're just sitting at the edge of a parade looking, craning your neck, trying to see what's coming next. It means that. It means many different things, but the basic meaning of hope I came up with finally as my definition for the term is that hope is a present confidence based on the past event of Jesus' resurrection. And I know my future, which is my own resurrection. That's what hope is. It's past, present, and future. After all this suffering, you begin to, you know you can endure, and by endurance you get character, and by character you get hope. And then he says, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Hope will not disappoint us because the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. The Holy Spirit strengthens our hope even more so that when we suffer, we once again endure. And when we endure, our character is proven. And when we overcome temptation, you know, James has a whole section on it in the first chapter. Count it all joy, brothers, when you overcome various trials, because to him who overcomes, God will give a crown of glory, a crown of life. That's what we're looking for. The Bible has four crowns. Crown of life, crown of glory, crown of righteousness, crown of honor. But there's one that comes before that. It's a crown of thorns. Suffering first, then glory. Even for Jesus, that was the rule. Remember on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, he's talking to those two guys. They don't recognize him. And he tells them Messiah had to suffer before he could come into his glory. So do we. Jesus is our example. And as he refused to sin, we also must choose not to sin. Tough, tough message. But that's the reality of the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit that he's given us gives us the power to overcome that. Now, is there any place else where you can get... This, is there any place else where you can get justification and peace with God? There's a story in one of uh, C.S. Lewis's books in the Chronicles of Narnia where a girl named Jill is dying of thirst. And she's walking through the woods and she finally comes to an open area and looks down and sees water bubbling by and her thirst drives her to that water and she runs down the hill but when she gets there she sees that the water is coming away from the feet of this giant lion Jesus the lion of Judah his name is Aslan in that series and she looks up at him great lion and she says sir do you eat little girls? Now see, in Narnia, the animals could talk. Lewis believes that animals before the fall of man were able to communicate with man. And this lion looked at her and said, I have devoured kings and kingdoms and nations and peoples. Yes, I eat little girls. She says, then I must get my water somewhere else. And he says, there is no other water. There is no place we can go to have our thirst filled except Jesus. One of the most powerful statements in the Bible is when Jesus talks to the woman at the well. The disciples have gone into town to buy food. They don't know what's going on, but he's out there waiting. And this woman comes out at noon. Obviously, she was the subject of the conversation with the other women in the early morning and late evening when they came out. But she comes out at noon, and she sees this Jew sitting on the side of the well. 
She comes with her eyes downcast, doesn't look at him, doesn't speak to him, comes up, starts lowering her pitcher in the well, and Jesus says, give me something to drink. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a woman of Samaria? A woman, first of all, you know, men didn't speak to their wives in public. Even when Mary spoke to Jesus, he said, what's that got to do with us, woman? I mean, that's the way the Jews were. He was an adult male. A woman was talking to him. Women don't normally talk to people. But she says, why do you talk to me? Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who's speaking with you, he would give you living water and you'd never thirst again. Water welling up into eternal life. And she says, give me that water always. Jesus said, go get your husband and come here. She said, I don't have a husband. He looks into her heart. He says, you're right in saying you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're shacked up with now is not your husband. You told the truth. And she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And Samaritan theology, any prophet that came after Moses is the Messiah. So she sees who he is. And he tells her, go go get your husband. And she leaves her water jar in her haste and runs back to the little town of Sychar. Today it's called Oscar, down in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Jacob's well is still there. The water's still good to drink. It's been there for 3,400 years, 3,800 years. I went down into it. You have to take steps to go down inside where the well is because the mountains always flow down into the valleys. So they had to keep it open by making steps going up. And I took a picture down in there of the well and the bucket. It goes down 72 feet to the water. So, see, Jesus had no way way to get water. But Jesus is the source of the real water. And that's the Holy Spirit. And this woman came back. And by that time, the disciples were back. And they tried to give him food. And he said, no, I'm all right. I'm not hungry. And they said, well, has somebody brought him food? They, They didn't get it. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Don't you say there are four months till the harvest? Look, lift up your eyes. The fields are white to the harvest. And all these people coming out to meet with Jesus. And Jesus stayed with them two days. And then they went back to the woman and they said, We don't need your testimony anymore. We know that He really is the Savior of the world. See, if you meet Jesus personally, you don't need me to tell you stuff. You know He's the Savior. You also know He is the Lord of Lords. The King of Kings. And the best, our best nature is to be able to serve Him. I love this passage. There is no place you can go but Jesus for life. And then start with verse 6. He calls us by four different names. See if you can pick them out. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, there's the first one. Christ died for the ungodly. There's the second one. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that in this. While we were still sinners, there's the third one. Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were... God's enemies, there's the fourth one. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see those how much mores in there? That's just solid rabbinic argument. He's going from what the rabbis called the light to the heavy. If this is true, if we're saved by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by his life? By his life. His life is stronger than death. 
Be saved with God's wrath through him. Be saved through his life. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation, a big Latin word that means we've, we've made friends with God. We've gotten back together with God through Jesus. But look at the four words that describe us. Powerless, we were weak. We couldn't do anything to save ourselves. Not only were we powerless, we were ungodly. We were ungodly because we were powerless. Ungodly is the biggest term for evil in the Bible. Psalm 1 uses it in many other places in Scripture. We were ungodly. So here we are, powerless, ungodly. Then down in verse 8, he says, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Sinners, that's people who keep sinning. And then he says, since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? If his blood counts us not guilty, and we put our faith in his death. And I said this to you the other day. By your faith, you entered the dead body of Christ on the cross. By your faith, you were taken down with him and buried with him. Romans 6. By your faith, Paul says, you were made alive together with Christ and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where we are. We've got the victory through our faith. And look what he says here. If we've been reconciled through his death, how much will we be saved? How much more will we be saved through his life? His life is stronger than death. His life saves us and gives us life. And, you know, Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But Paul says, while we were God's enemies, Jesus gave his life for us. When Jesus said, love your enemies, he's teaching his life. He loved his enemies and died for them. And even in dying, he asks God's forgiveness on those who are killing him. My wife and I pray for people who are persecuted because there's more persecution in the world today than ever before in Christian history. But as I said last night, the church is growing at a rate faster than ever before in Christian history. That's why persecution has been stepped up. Satan's never figured it out that the more he persecutes the church, the more it grows. When those 20, uh, 19 people were killed down by the Mediterranean Sea by ISIS. Other Christians were there, missionaries, thinking, oh, the people are going to be terrified. But when he came into the office the next day, the lady who was from Egypt who worked for him said, I am greatly encouraged. Because we know martyrdom really doesn't kill us. Isn't that wonderful? Francis of Assisi says, when we die, we are born to eternal life. Well, this last statement, not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. We rejoice in God. That's the greatest of all rejoicing. We thank God and praise God and rejoice in Him for what He's done for us in Jesus. And I'm done. You have questions? See, when you get to this point in Romans, I wish I had time to go into the second half of the chapter because it says, ladies, by one man sin entered the world and death came through sin. Paul doesn't even mention Eve. 
Did you know that Eve didn't even have a name until after they sinned? And then because they were alienated, Adam had to name her. Just like he named the animals, meaning he's her Lord just like he is the animals. The fallen nature puts man over woman. Even though Eve and Adam were both called Adam, both called mankind early. He had to name her after the fall. It wasn't her fault that we sinned, it was Adam's. Adam was the one who'd heard from the mouth of God, don't eat from this tree or you will die. The Hebrew says, dying you will die. That's a very strong way of saying you will certainly die. And so, starting with the last part of chapter 5, he goes into a discussion of the difference between Adam and the second Adam. Between the first man and the man who created him. It was Christ who walked with Adam and Eve. He made Adam in his image. And he took woman out of man. I can't imagine an angel trying to understand that. Now what's he doing now? Well, he's making a hole in the man's side. Well, what's he doing? Well, he's taking out a portion of the side. But what's he doing with it? Oh, look what he's building. It's really interesting. The Hebrew says he built a woman. Now, I know some women who are built, you know. Uh, I think that's great. God built a woman out of man. And then, you know, he is, it's so funny because <laughs> he's named all these animals. And you could just see him, you know, elephant, dinosaur, uh, dog, cat. You know, no no excitement. And then he brings woman, brings Eve in. He sees her for the first time. And he waxes poetic. It's the first poem in the Bible. Now this, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this will be called Isha, woman, because this came out of Ish, man. Three times. This, this, this. He's excited. I always wondered if she had hairy armpits. You know. <laughs> I wonder weird things. I know it's, it's a strange thing. But it's the man who sinned. And the whole human race fell from one man. And Paul says about Jesus that his work of righteousness was more powerful even than death that Adam brought to all men. So he takes us out of death into life. Questions? Yeah. I've heard sometimes, I've heard people interpret suffering as physical suffering, but I like the way you brought that forth that it's our own. That would reflect yes. our suffering. But too many times it's like people embrace a physical illness. Yeah. Well, I, you know, my view on on that is, live as long as you can, as long as you're healthy. You know, but something's got to happen to me sometime. I mean, anybody that gets up over seventy or eighty or ninety, sometime you're going to get something, and we're all going to die, sometime. Uh, but that's not that's not what suffering is to these guys. I mean, yeah, my dad was suffering with cancer. I saw him go from 160 robust, healthy pounds. I, I went shopping with him once. He ran all the places he went. I had trouble keeping up with him as young as I was. Uh, he was 74 years old when he had gotten down to 81 pounds fighting this cancer, and he finally died. And that was suffering. Putting, putting, yeah, yeah, like uh, Galatians 5.17 says, the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh. There's a war going on inside us. Paul talks about it in Romans 7, which we'll get to. 
He said, I don't understand my own actions. I keep doing what's wrong even though I know what's right. This is, this is what the Christian life is. It's a struggle against wickedness. And it's, it's the flesh being put down by the Spirit, being conquered by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Can we look at it like a checkbook? Reconciling a checkbook because we were totally out of balance with God's relationship. Good. And that brought us into the balance. Right. It balances the checkbook between us and God. That is really interesting. And we don't do it. God does it. Any other comments or questions? Really appreciate you all listening. Yes, sir. Yeah. That just sort of broke along with this whole idea that uh, God's already done everything Almighty God can do to save us and keep us safe, except take away our power of choice. Yeah, that's right. We can choose to judge ourselves, and a judge passes a sentence that is carried out. That's right. So we need, when we look at ourselves and see sin, we need to do something. Yeah, we do. We need to judge ourselves and repent. And that's connected with communion. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And those who don't are guilty of the body and blood of Christ. You know, it's not some token or emblem or something. It's the body and blood for the Christian. Powerful. Yeah. Good point. Uh, when we're justified, we're actually justified by God. But when we judge, we need to judge ourselves first. Just like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, take the plank out of your eye before you try taking the speck out of the other guy's eye. Can you imagine turning your head and knocking somebody down with a plank in your eye? You know, that's a, that had to be humorous to those Jews back then. It's called hyperbole, you know, when you overemphasize something. But uh, wonderful teaching. What else? Any other questions or comments? All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Really enjoy it. Thank you.